0: Support for this podcast comes from Kinney Drugs, now celebrating 120 years of providing local communities with medications, advice, and healthcare products and services. Kinney pharmacists administer all CDC recommended vaccines to those age 18 and older, including influenza, pneumonia, HPV, tetanus, pertussis, and diphtheria, measles, mumps, and rubella, chickenpox, and hepatitis A and B. Kinney pharmacists will be administering RSV vaccinations to those 60 years of age and older. Kinney Drugs is 100% employee-owned and locally committed since 1903. Learn more at KinneyDrugs.com.
1: Authoritarians thrive on the idea of falsehood, on the idea of, of lying, because they understand that if you can control the information source, you can control the population.
0: Welcome to the Vermont Conversation, I'm David Goodman. The truth isn't dying, it's being killed. Lee McIntyre makes this argument in his latest book, On Disinformation, How to Fight for Truth and Protect Democracy. McIntyre is a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University. His previous books include "Post Truth and How to Talk to a Science Denier. McIntyre says that the science denialism that flourished during the COVID pandemic, including anti-vax conspiracy theories, is a classic form of disinformation. I began by asking him how to talk to a science denier.
1: The way that you talk to a science denier is, well, for one thing, don't call them a science denier because they find that insulting. And notice that the title of the book is how to how to talk to them, not how to convince them. It's how to have a conversation because a conversation is really an important first step. And I'll back it off even one further, which is that listening is the most important part of a conversation. And so in a a nutshell, what I found in doing the research for that book is that if you're talking with someone who radically disagrees with you, the best way to do it is face-to-face in a calm, patient, respectful way, where you maybe start off by just listening to what they have to say. And the reason this works when it does, it doesn't always work. But the reason uh, it's effective when nothing else can be, is that people need to trust you before they will hear what you have to say. And you can't really change their mind, they can only change their own mind. But In short, I mean, I thought even a slogan that helps here. They don't have a fact deficit. They have a trust deficit. If they don't trust you, they're not going to listen to your facts. So you go face to face. You speak to people who disagree. You listen. And then pretty soon they're listening to you. And if that will work, if anything can work, sometimes nothing can.
0: So people, um, it's been unavoidable that people... Are having this experience with friends, colleagues, and family members, some bit of you know, untruth, disinformation, whatever you want to call it, about uh, the uh, health effects of COVID vaccines, for example. How do you begin that conversation? And you say it's about beginning by building trust. So what does it sound like when you enter into that conversation?
1: Sometimes you can say things like, Well, well, what have you heard so far? Or, you know, what, what, what do you believe? And then when they tell you what they believe, you can say, um, you know, what are your sources on that? Or, you know, what what who do you trust on that? And they'll often tell you, and I mean, you can have if you try to have that as a conversation, not in a in a challenging way, but almost as if they're trying to convince you then sometimes, you know, in trying to convince you to vouch for their sources, you know, why they think that this thing that they believe is true, they'll begin to see some of the holes in their argument. And then when it's your turn to speak, you can, you know, ask some good questions. I I find that the most effective questions are not questions about what the person believes, but why they believe it. I tend not to try to challenge and say, you know, well, well, that's wrong, or, you know, have you read this study? But to say, well, you know, why, why do you think that's true? Or really my, my favorite question, this is, you, forgive me, this is something a philosopher's question, I borrowed it from, from Karl Popper. Um, deeper into the conversation, sometimes I'll say, well, what evidence could prove you wrong? You know, what evidence if I had it in my back pocket? Would convince you to change your mind. Because if the answer is nothing, then that's really not an empirical belief in the first place. I mean, maybe they believe it on faith or ideology. But if they can't answer that question, then it's kind of a tip off that they're not really reasoning in a scientific way. So I've always had good luck in, you know, being curious about why they believe what they believe, wanting to, you know, draw them out a little bit, you know, to get the, the trust working if possible. And sometimes I'll even telegraph and say, you know, I'm, I'm going to ask you some hard questions now about why you believe what you believe. And, um, you know, it's, is that okay? And, you know, they give you permission. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. You know, I'm very firm in my belief. Okay. Well, and, and then you can ask a question like, well, you know, I haven't heard you say anything to indicate that you have any doubt whatsoever that you're right, but scientists always have doubts.
0: Okay. And but so- let, let, let's take yeah. a few cardinal examples in our current moment sure. of disinformation that is fervently believed. Yes. Take, for example, that Donald Trump won the 2020 election. Have you ever had success in moving somebody off the that dime there? Uh, who believes that?
1: that- that conversation, um, I have not I have not had that conversation, which I've tried to convince someone of that. I've talked to many, many more science deniers than uh, election deniers. Um, but they're the same. Election denial and science denial come from the same root. And the important thing to remember is that a belief fervently held like that, is a matter of identity. It's not just what they believe, it's who they are. And so when someone holds a belief so strongly that nothing you say can convince them, no evidence can convince them, um, things can get a little hot. It can, it can be difficult. I mean, it can be a challenge in that conversation just to uh, have someone open to the possibility even to hear what you're saying. The best source for that in the political realm, uh, a couple of friends of mine are—they—they uh, um, they run a, a small workshop, a small think tank called Hear Yourself Think, called uh, HearYourselfThink.org, and their husband and wife team of uh, labor organizers who go to Trump rallies and film themselves having conversations with Trump supporters trying to convince them to stop watching fake news, that, that, you know, that the election was not fake, et cetera. And they have really more or less validated in practice the idea that if you're calm and respectful, you can actually have civil conversations.
0: I wonder what your advice would be. I, I watched um, the CNN town hall where Caitlin Collins interviewed Trump. I found it kind of excruciating. You know, she he would lie she would respond with facts and, you know, and over and over again, he would over talk her. She would interrupt. Do you have any advice for journalists who are interviewing somebody like Donald Trump?
1: Yeah. I don't think it was Caitlin Collins fault. I think by the time she got in that room, it was a setup for one thing. the audience. I, I, I agree with you. I, I think jam-packed. she was doing her damnedest. Yeah. Yeah. The audience was jam packed with Trump supporters, which is, bad you know for something like that because it seems you know as if everybody agrees with him and there was really he kept challenging the format there was really no way for her to pin him down because he it wasn't a a factual interview he was it was just an opportunity for him to in an uninterrupted format uh share his lying and um i the fault for that lies with the CNN executive who booked it because you don't give a liar a microphone and an uninterrupted forum to spread their lies. That, that's the worst possible thing you can do for disinformation. Trump's lying. He knows he's lying. And the, the media coverage is the oxygen. It's the lifeblood for the lie. Um, now, sometimes... But you asked a good question, how can journalists handle it? Um, Journalists are used to dealing with hostile uh, interview subjects. They do it overseas all the time. Why more of them don't do it in the United States, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe the only people equipped to really do those interviews are people who have tried to interview, you know, a dictator in a third world country because that, you know, Trump's following that playbook in his, uh, in his interviews. I've always admired the Jonathan Swan interview uh, with Trump, where Trump would lie and write in his hand, Jonathan Swan had the goods, you know, Trump would say something about, well, you know, COVID deaths went, you know, went down in this particular. he'd hand him a piece of paper and he'd say, oh, but you know, you're measuring this, you're not measuring that. And he'd hand him the other thing. And then Trump would have to backpedal. So, you know, having the goods there one-on-one, um, is important doing it live is another problem i mean caitlin collins was confronted by the fact that this was going out live where it's just a a cascade of lies that's by the way a disinformation tactic straight out of the russian playbook it's called the fire hose of falsehood and they just will overwhelm you with lies and you can't fact check that many lies in uh, in real time so it should be it should be edited it should be um, not in real time. There should be a way, you know, to put a disclaimer on it. Um, you know, so it's also so the journalists can look up what the facts are. Though Jonathan Swan did a masterful job in real time because he had the facts sitting right there. No audience. It was very difficult for Caitlin Collins because she was the only person in the room who was on the side of uh, you know, reason, I think.
0: And and I agree. I think she was set up to fail. I don't think you can walk into you know a Roman carnival where people are getting gored and think you're going to come out wearing a white outfit that isn't uh, streaked in blood. Yeah. Um, so you want you one of your books is called Post Truth, and you trace the history of this. This didn't just appear. You know when Donald Trump descended the elevator in Trump Tower. What is, how did we get into this mess where truth, you know, the, the very facts that we have are in dispute?
1: So in post-truth, I trace up five precursors to the post-truth era, noting the fact that there's always been lying. Politicians have lied. I mean, the, and conspiracy theories have been around since Nero. I mean, you know, this is an old problem. So what's new about it? The precursors that go back, one is science denial. Sci- modern science denial really started in the 1950s and created a blueprint for what I call reality denial, for election denial, the kind of stuff that, uh, that Trump is, is doing. Just to look at that and realize climate denial was extremely successful. I mean, the fossil fuel companies were knew about this in the 70s, were able to cover it up for an awfully long time. Another precursor is the decline of traditional media and the rise of social media. That's a big one, that latter part, by the way, because I think that's really, if you had to push me, I think that's what makes it different these days. Um, people have always lied, but it's a new era when lies can be spread around the world instantaneously. I mean, you, you often hear people now complaining about censorship when the social media companies are trying to stop disinformation. But it's not, and I, I think that that resonates with some people because they've grown to expect that everybody should have complete access to you know, a worldwide amplification of every passing thought in their head, whether it's factual or not. But that's not censorship. That's just refusing to amplify someone else's lie. So it's the, the it's the mechanism, the means for amplification of uh, uh, falsehood. That's what really makes it different. Now, um, there are some other precursors. Uh, cognitive bias has been with us, you know, since probably species evolved, But it's really the amplification of falsehood through social media that's, I think, the big one.
0: What Explain the difference between misinformation and disinformation.
1: Yeah. I'm glad you asked that because a lot of people miss it. Um, misinformation is a mistake. Misinformation is an accident, um, something that somebody happens to believe that's false that If you present them with facts, maybe they would change their mind. Disinformation is a lie. Disinformation is a falsehood that is intentionally shared by someone who knows that it's false and is sharing it anyway because it serves their interest to have an army of people believe that falsehood. And the other really insidious thing about disinformation is that it's not just intended to get someone to believe that a false thing is true. It's intended to polarize them about a factual issue so that they distrust and sometimes even hate the people who are on the other side of it. So there's this this sense in which disinformation doesn't just ruin you for whatever fact it is that they're lying about. In some ways it can ruin you for any facts then on, from then on. You know, that the person who's lying to you becomes the person that you trust, and then they can lie to you about many, many other things.
0: This is where you get into, you quote Yale historian Tim Snyder uh, talking about how uh, post-truth is pre-fascism. So this is where you move from simply what you believe could be harmless. You can believe in false things all you want. You can believe in... Um, the Tooth Fairy, or I hope no kids are listening, but um, but when we talk about this being a precursor to authoritarianism, authoritarianism, explain that connection, why post-truth is so essential in that environment.
1: Tim Snyder is one of my heroes. Um, that line, post-truth is pre-fascism, so important. His book on tyranny was an important book when I was writing post-truth. And it was, in fact, a model for my new book on disinformation. I mean, you can tell on tyranny, on disinformation. It's a small book. I think it's the exact same size as Tim Snyder's book. He yeah he,
0: it fits in your back pocket and does.
1: Uh, and and i I mean, I shamelessly kind of copied how he did that. Um, here's the connection. Um, authoritarians thrive on the idea of falsehood, on the idea of, of lying, because they understand that if you can control the information source, you can control the population. Now, you might think that if you were a dictator, you could say or do anything you wanted. I mean, why do you even need to lie? Because it's it's like you care about what anybody thinks of you. You can just you know say, this is the way it is, and it is. Yet, if you look at most authoritarians, you look at Putin, you look at Xi and China, they're a little bit, they, they want that fig leaf, right? They don't want to just be a dictator. They want it to seem as if they're living in a democracy. Um, they, they, uh, someone, uh, I forget who, um, tagged that, uh, an electoral dictatorship, You know where, you, where you've got it seeming as if. Well, Snyder really did a great job of seeing that this was the wave of the future. When, when uh, the uh, 2016 election was happening, he was over in Europe looking at what was happening with Orban in Hungary and realizing, oh, no, this is now happening in the United States. And so, you know, there are all these countries around the world that used to be democracies, that are tending more and more toward electoral dictatorships. I'm going to put Turkey in that category as well. Do they have elections in Turkey? Yes, but they're not free and fair elections. Uh, You know, they're, you know, and that's often the, the mark for an authoritarian. They come to power by legitimate means, but then they end the ability of someone else to challenge them. So it's that I I define post-truth as the political subordination of reality. It's that moment when you decide that what's good for you politically is more important than truth. And that is the road to fascism.
0: So it sheds new light on that kind of opening shot of the Trump presidency was lying about the inaugural crowd size. Uh, He essentially sent his press secretary, Sean Spicer, out to the media um, to lie. Uh, uh, It was a bald-faced lie because there were all the images that we could see. Um, Sean Spicer immediately becomes a character on SNL. He is mocked. His credibility is forever in tatters. But there was a method to this madness, Lee. Explain why it was important at the beginning of his presidency to engage in a bald-faced lie and to attack the journalists, which is what Spicer was sent to do, who were pointing this out in almost, you know, in mocking tones.
1: Yeah. He was saying, this is the world you now live in. I'm not lying to convince you that what I'm saying... I'm not lying to convince you that what I'm saying is true, because you can see that it's not true by looking at the photographic evidence. I'm lying to assert my power. I'm lying because I can lie and get away with it. There's nothing you can do about it. And that is now the reality of the next four years of my presidency. So he was setting the stage for what was to come. Um, My friend Jason Stanley wrote a a book called How Propaganda Works, in which he says that the point of propaganda isn't to convince you, it's to show you who's boss. That's what Trump was doing. He was saying, I have such power that I have power over reality itself, which is to say over, you know, if I say that something is true, you're going to have to deal with the fact that for all intents and purposes, it really is true, because, uh, you know, that's. That's how powerful I am. And notice that he didn't just lie about the size of the inauguration crowd. He lied about whether it rained on his inauguration. Uh, He went on not too long after that to lie about the path of that hurricane that was going through Alabama. And he marked with a Sharpie on the weather map to say, no, no, look, this is the way. I mean, these are stupid, ridiculous lies. And people at the time were kind of flummoxed. Why, you know, is the man an idiot? Why is he lying about things that are so obviously untrue it was it was a way for him to signal to, to his followers and to everyone else this is now your reality and i have to say he built from that to january 6 i well, believe it was a straight line from he, that first lie straight through january 6.
0: he was also kind of road testing a loyalty test um that to love me is to lie for me and We've seen that in sort of on graphic display since January 6th, where otherwise intelligent members of Congress who were in fact attacked and whose lives were at risk on January 6th walk out onto national media and defend the guy who organized that attack. It's a remarkable sight.
1: What is truth in that case? What use is the truth? Um, If the truth doesn't serve your political ends, um, what good is it? Why defend it? Again, the political subordination of reality. You've got people who understand, as I think Trump actually understands, that he didn't win the election, that all these other people understand it. But it becomes the party line. It becomes what the kind of the price of admission, what you have to say i i you know in writing post truth i had the the uh, opening quotation for each of the chapters pretty much all of them but but one was a quotation from george orwell's 1984 you know that that's the type of society you you can tr- remember the ministry of truth you control the truth you control the population you 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 assert you assert your dominance over reality and the people at the same time
0: It strikes me that whenever we hear what initially appear to be, you know, bald-faced lies, I won an election that I lost. Um, You know, what's funny to me is if you were to apply this to sports and you were to say that whoever won the Super Bowl lost the Super Bowl because, you know, that was your favorite team, nobody, there's no room for argument. And yet um, somehow we've decided the results of an election can be endlessly debated and litigated. Um, so these have strategic value. You know, The bigger the lie, going back to Trump's original mm-hmm. comment, that he could shoot somebody in Fifth Avenue and people would still vote for me. And he has, by and large, proved that to be the case, that um, the majority of uh, people who vote in Republican primaries um, will do that. And now we're seeing a situation where three indictments in, soon to be four this week, I believe, um, He he's only getting more popular.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know if he's getting more popular. Well, let me put it this way. I just saw in the news this morning that 63% of Republican voters think that uh the 2020 election was stolen this is three years in so now do they actually 63 percent actually believe it or 63 percent are willing to assert that I, I don't know how to break that apart but in some ways it doesn't matter right in, in some ways it doesn't matter because they're using that kind of almost in the way trump did right they're using uh you know, for expediency, you know, the, the the lie helps them get to from point A to point B. Point B to vote for him, they want to be able to vote for him, so they need an excuse, and the excuse is, oh, the election was stolen, so let's go ahead and vote for him.
0: Lee, I wonder if you could uh, tell us a little about yourself. How did you come to be um, an expert on science denialism and propaganda and disinformation?
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm a philosopher, and I have a, I have a PhD in philosophy, and I've been fascinated my whole life with the philosophy of science, where the central question is, how do you distinguish between science uh, and pseudoscience, or science denial, or, or non-science, however you want to think of it? Basically, what makes science so special? And I was but even before this even before i was a grown person a philosopher of science i was scandalized by people who attacked reason and science and philosophy i remember being a kid reading the encyclopedia uh just open mouthed that these people who persecuted galileo and Giordano bruno and you know all these folks who were you know standing up for enlightenment values and so as a philosopher I've always been interested in this question of how to defend science against the people who attack it, against science's critics, because science isn't perfect, but it's, I think, pretty close to the, you know, the best that human reason has to offer. And, But as a holdover from childhood, I remember always thinking, but I was born too late. I mean, who's really attacking science now? There are people who don't believe in evolution. There are you know, people who attack science in various ways. And I was writing about this mostly for my philosophical colleagues. But then things really started to heat up. Um, And, you know, anti-vaxxers became a thing. And I'm talking about maybe 2015 or so, before Trump came down that golden elevator. And I wrote a book called Respecting Truth, in which, you know, I kind of finally had enough material to write about what I thought was, you know, people who were disrespecting the idea of truth. Then once the political season started, it was clear, oh my goodness, we're in another era in which you know truth needs to be defended. And that's when I really made the jump to writing for a general audience. I had really wanted to bring other non-philosophers into the conversation earlier. But with Post-Truth, it was really my big foray into writing about you know, truth and reason and science and belief. Uh, in a way that would just you know capture everyone's attention. And because it was also in the news, this was something that sort of fascinated me because finally philosophers could be useful in this debate. And so I just kept writing, and people kept taking more and more water out of the pool. So I just kept writing and writing. And here we are with on disinformation, where my hair is on fire, because I think that we're on the cusp of authoritarian rule in the United States. This next election will decide that. How did we get here? Um, It's not just a matter of defending science anymore because things metastasized. Science denial wasn't enough, now it's reality denial. Now it's not just science under threat, now it's democracy. And so these are pretty high stakes. And I feel very lucky as a philosopher to have a platform to be able to talk about this because all of the stuff that I was writing about that had to do with belief and truth and reason about evolution and vaccines all of a sudden is hugely applicable to climate change and anti-COVID you know, COVID denial and election denial. I want to,
0: uh, you know, one of the things that I find so helpful in your work uh, and in the work of others who you've mentioned, Jason Stanley, Tim Snyder, who write about really kind of the ABCs of how propaganda works and disinformation works. And you do that. You talk about how there is a five-point strategy that science deniers, truth deniers, all refer to, all rely on. Explain what that strategy
1: is. I didn't discover this. Uh, Mark and Chris Hufnagel, uh some decades back, discovered this. And it's uh, it's absolutely a, a brilliant, thing that they found. Every science denier, and I believe every reality denier, every election denier, follows the same blueprint. They cherry-pick evidence. They believe in conspiracy theories. They engage in illogical reasoning. They rely on fake experts and denigrate real experts. And then my favorite of all, point five, They think that science has to be perfect in order to be credible. Now, if you just think of those five steps in the rubric, think about COVID denial. Think about the the, the fraud that went on in uh, Arizona over uh, Trump's uh, election claims about the bamboo ballots and everything there. Cherry picking evidence, uh, fake experts, conspiracy theory, illogical reasoning, it all fits. It's all the exact same thing. And what that means is that once you understand that blueprint, it gives you a leg up in learning how to fight back. Because I think the best way to fight back is to realize you can't have a good faith debate about facts. In some cases, these are corrupt folks who know the facts and they're just rejecting them. In, but in other cases, they're duped. You know, there are people who are victimized by the liars, um, and they're not going to listen to your facts because they're radicalized against it. The, the The reason I wrote on disinformation is because I finally found the last piece of the puzzle. I had thought about denial, but what occurred to me finally was, where does denial come from? It's It's on purpose. It's because somebody is profiting by this, not always economically, but ideologically or politically. And there are the people who create the disinformation, the people who amplify it, and the people who believe it. And in some ways, the people who believe it are the victims. Sometimes your garden variety denier is is a victim. They're, they're somebody that you could actually feel sorry for because they're being lied to by well, people and, who and, are powerful.
0: And to pick up on that point, science deniers have paid a very terrible price in the age of COVID. We know that uh, in red states, the death rates were far higher, you know, where there was vaccine denialism, COVID denialism, the death rates were far higher than in places where there wasn't this kind of rampant denialism. So, death rates in red states higher than in blue states during COVID. And this idea that you go to doctors, you know, now in Florida, the there is this movement for medical freedom. The freedom that they're talking about is freedom from having, you know, board-certified physicians treat their illness. These are physicians uh, who will give them the medicine that they come in choosing, ivermectin, hydrochloroquine, or... Um, How do you explain how people will do things that are against their own interests, in this case, against their own health?
1: When people are afraid, when they're angry, when they're polarized to think that the other side is not just wrong, but evil, they will not see that they're being victimized, they, they'll not realize that they're, you know, yes, they're being lied to, but not by the, you know, conspiracists that they're, you know, they're being told, but by the people who are sharing the conspiracy theory with them. Uh, Mark Twain said, "It's easier to fool someone than to convince them that they've been fooled." And so, I mean, we we've all heard of the, you know, the cults where the leader says, drink the Kool-Aid. And, you know, that's where the phrase comes from, from Jim Jones, right at Jonestown. They drink the Kool-Aid and they die. Um, science denial, yes, it can kill. It, it has killed before in uh, the, the AIDS crisis in South Africa when Mbeke said, you know, no, this is a Western plot. Uh, you know, AZT is a Western plot. You can cure AIDS with garlic and beetroot and lemon juice and 300,000 excess deaths happen. So science denial is a terrible thing. What's even more terrible is to realize that somebody is behind it. Somebody is profiting from this. This is done on purpose. It's not an accident. It's a lie. So, you know, who is behind the idea that vaccines are dangerous? Who is behind the idea that climate change is not real? Who's behind the idea that the election was stolen? Somebody... So let's
0: uh, try to answer some of those. Yeah. With climate denialism, we know there are very powerful fossil fuel interests who
1: profit from this.
0: Who profits from vaccine denialism?
1: Well, be prepared to be shocked. Um, Because the answer is not a happy one. Um, A million people died in the United States. Uh, untold, how many of those were because of vaccine denial, we'll never know, but th- surely thousands. Um, I'll use an example here. Um, everybody has heard of the claim that there were microchips in the COVID vaccines, but very few people know where that sort of a claim came from. Um, and if you trace it back, one thing that you learn is that that claim really uh, was amplified in the media for the first time, it really uh, went viral. Um, In April, 2020, uh, just a month into the pandemic, when there was an English language article that appeared in, in a publication called the Oriental Review, which made the claim that any future vaccines developed in the West would have tracking microchips in them, courtesy of Bill Gates, who held patent 666 on this technology. And at the end of the story, it said, share on Facebook, share on Twitter, which quite a number of people did, because by um, May 2020, 28% of the American population thought that there was some credence to this idea. Now, what people don't realize is that the Oriental Review is an English language propaganda arm of the SVR, which is the, you know, branch of... uh, Russian intelligence that deals with this sort of thing. And that that was a story that was placed there to undermine what a confidence in Western vaccines when they later appeared to get people to not take them. Um, why? Because the Russians had a competing vaccine. It was called the Sputnik Five, And remember, this was just a month into the pandemic. There was a great race for who was gonna have the first vaccine. Uh, hugely lucrative Asian and African markets for this, not to mention pride. I mean, it was called the Sputnik, for goodness sakes, right? So, and Putin has been undermining American science uh, for decades, really, since he came into office. So there was a terrific article in the New York Times in 2019 called Putin's Long War Against American Science, detailing the ways in which he does this. So undermining um, the COVID vaccines, was just part of this. How many thousands of people out of the million who died in the United States died from this? You know, we'll never know, but, but surely many, many people died as a result of this disinformation. But it was placed there for the benefit of Putin and Russia, because th- their interests were at stake. And that is the sad thing about disinformation. There are liars behind it who understand that people are going to get hurt and they do it anyway because it serves their interests.
0: And it has the larger goal of destabilizing American society, European society. Of course, you know, public health measures um, taken in total have been kind of the flashpoint for so many far right uh, uprisings going on all around the globe right now. I want to be sure we get to your points on how you fight disinformation. What are the key elements you have a multi-point program lay out the ways that we fight disinfo?
1: Yes, the one of the most important thing in fighting disinformation is to understand where it comes from. That it's not misinformation, that it's a lie. And if there's a lie then there has to be a liar. Now, how do you get a liar to stop lying? M- maybe you can't. How do you stop a victim from believing the lie once they hear it? Very hard to do. But the interesting part is that in that pipeline that goes from the creator of the disinformation to the believer, there's the amplification in the middle, and that's where you want to pinch down. That's the in the disinformation pipeline. That's where it can be stopped. This I, because. Without amplification, disinformation is really useless. Disinformation gets amplified through social media. It also gets amplified through partisan media, you know, by by people who are bystanders, who have, you know, either wittingly or unwittingly have their own interests at stake. And, you know, in my book, at the end of the book, I outline 10 things that the ordinary citizen can do to fight back against 10 things that the ordinary citizen can do to fight back against disinformation. Um, it, I don't have enough time to go over all 10, but the most important one, the foundational one is this. You cannot win an information war unless you know that you're in one. And if you watch cable news, they don't know we're in one. They use the word misinformation all the time. They treat what's happening about you know, the infidemic around COVID, about Trump's lying about the election, as if it were some sort of a natural disaster, that there's really nothing we can do. It's just like this, this hurricane of, of untruth. I mean, they understand that Trump is behind it, and they report on it in that way. But for the ordinary person, what can they possibly do about it? But you're talking
0: vote. about the partisan media as if they're innocent bystanders. And yeah. we yeah. know from the, you know, the lawsuit uh, waged by, um, you know, the voting machine companies, um, Fox is now paying three quarters of a billion dollars for the lies that it put out. And that's just the beginning. So they yeah. are they are soldiers in this war.
1: They, they are they're They're at least uh, accomplices. Uh, in the you know the, the crime that is occurring, Fox News. We learned through the settlement in that lawsuit that you mentioned that they lie. They they will their their uh, hosts will say things that they know are untrue because it serves their interests for audience engagement for ratings for money. The disappointing thing is to realize that other newscasters also bear some responsibility. Um, if you watch MSNBC, you watch CNN. Um, I'm not talking here about the extent to which they're partisan, or to which they have a point of view. I'm talking about the extent to which they're subject to some of the same forces that Fox News is subject to, like wanting viewer engagement or worrying about money or worrying about ratings. And so if you think about it, just the ability to, not be a, accused of political bias, you know, to want to tell both sides of the story. Journalists do that all the time. And so you see liars booked on Meet the Press, you know, booked on all these programs where the host knows that they're going to lie. That is not how to fight disinformation. Uh, as we saw with Caitlin Collins, no matter how good a job he, you do in fighting back against them, once you've given them a platform, You've given them the lifeblood for that disinformation to get out to ears, uh, which means that some people will believe it. Um, so, th- you know, there there is some culpability there, as you say. I mean, some executive, I think he's actually been fired now at CNN, booked that uninterrupted town hall with uh, with Donald Trump, you know, a textbook example of how not to fight disinformation. Social media companies also bear some responsibility. Their algorithms, um, as far as we know, uh, a tweak for engagement, not for truth. And we know this because just they started to worry about it at one point before the 2020 election and started to put up disclaimers. And then after 2020, they dialed it back. And so you know they are protected by law from being sued over what they put up or what they don't put up, they simply don't do enough because they don't have a financial incentive to do enough to fight disinformation. They fight, they fight beheadings, they fight terrorism because it's in their interest. They don't fight disinformation as much as they should.
0: And of course, now in the case of Twitter, they've been captured by a guy who is a devotee of disinformation and views it as, you know, part of his—it's a profit center for Twitter.
1: Well, uh, yes, and and he's part of the whole chattering class that says that um, any fight against disinformation is just censorship, which is ridiculous. I mean, uh, refusing to amplify someone else's lie is not censorship. The First Amendment protects us against the government cracking down on our free speech, not Twitter saying. know we're not going to let you broadcast that because it's a lie and i have to say even before elon musk took over the night before elon musk took over i did a little checking on twitter and found that um you've maybe heard of the disinformation dozen uh that the uh, center for countering digital hate found in 2019 that 65 percent of the anti-vax propaganda on twitter was due to 12 people the night before elon musk took over twitter eight of them still had a platform on Twitter. So we can't blame that on Elon Musk. They were still there. There was still an incentive for Twitter to platform those people, even though they knew they were going to be lying.
0: How do we win the war on truth? What is the most important thing that listeners um, can do to not become casualties?
1: The most important thing you can do is to realize that you have more power than you think. Part of disinformation is intended to make you feel powerless, to make you feel cynical, to make you feel like you should even give up on the concept of truth because it's so difficult to fact check and to know what's true that there is no such thing as truth. And if there's no truth, there's no accountability. So understand that there's something that you can do. I would say the most important thing is to focus in on the social media companies and the government officials who represent you and the cable news channels and their advertisers and complain. It doesn't take that many people to complain to a business for them to do something. Um, People are used to complaining about Fox News. I wonder how many people actually write in. But you you look at CNN. I mean, how, how much pressure do they actually get? Not to you know to do some of the false equivalents that they do. Not to you know book things like the rally. Now I don't know because that the, the fellow I forget his name, that the head of uh, CNN did eventually get Chris fired, and moved, yeah. for, for something like that. But the point is that grassroots realizing that we have more power than we think. Just writing to your member of Congress saying you have the power to regulate social media, and by the way. Uh, this is a good warm-up for AI, which is coming, which is here, and it's going to make it even worse. And, you know, we'd, we'd better get ready for that because that is a problem from hell.
0: Well, Lee McIntyre, I want to thank you for joining us on the
1: Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Lee McIntyre is a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University. His latest book is On Disinformation, How to Fight for Truth and Protect Democracy.